Bible reading this morning is from John 7, and we are reading from verse 28. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him, because I am from him, and he sent me. At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Still, many in the crowd believed in him. They said, When the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time, and then I am going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said, He is the Messiah. Still others asked, How can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not Scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, Why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. You mean he has deceived you also? The Pharisees retorted. Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you'll find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. Now at the heart of this chapter in John's Gospel, we're going to be looking at the whole chapter, by the way, just before our reading started in verse 24, Jesus says these words. He says, stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. And this morning we'll see that Jesus is deeply concerned that we learn to judge rightly. Now, of course, not all judgments that we make, not all discernment that we have to do uh, carries the same weight. Some things, that, some decisions we make carry implications for the rest of our lives, whereas others are trivial and they affect maybe our lunchtime and whether or not we have a good experience. And what Jesus is concerned with here is the most important area of discernment you'll ever uh, undertake or have to, have to go through with, 
and that is judgments concerning himself. The driving force behind the action in this chapter is people failing to make right judgments about Jesus. And there's this back and forth as people come to conclusions about him and he corrects them. So I have two hopes for our time together this morning. My first is that you'll clearly understand the claims that Jesus makes about himself and he holds up for you to consider. And the second related hope is that you will trust the claims that he makes about himself and be able to entrust yourself to him on the basis of what he says. In order to do that, we're going to consider three aspects of Jesus' ministry that confront us in this chapter. Jesus divides opinion. Jesus exposes hearts. And finally, Jesus offers us what we don't deserve. First, let's consider how Jesus divides opinion wherever he goes. The key verse uh, that was read for us is verse 43. It sums up what happens throughout this chapter. We read there, Thus, the people were divided because of Jesus. But what brings things to this point? How do we get here? Well, the events kick off with the arrival of the Festival of Tabernacles, also called the Feast of Booths. This was one of three annual pilgrimage festivals where uh, faithful Jews would travel to Jerusalem to celebrate each year. And by many accounts, in Jesus' day, this was the most popular of these three festivals. And so this prompts Jesus' brothers, or half-brothers, uh, to suggest that he used this occasion to go up to Jerusalem and uh, to, to wow the crowds a little bit. There are massive crowds flocking there. Use the occasion to win some some support, some much-needed support, because at this point, Jesus has just lost a number of his followers. And this is the first response uh, we catch in this chapter. And if we think this is a sincere or good suggestion, uh, we are told to think again by John. He tells us in verse 5 that the reason they make this suggestion is that they did not believe in him. A quick survey of the rest of this chapter shows us that this is just one response to Jesus of a plethora of assessments. So um, we're going to go lightning fast through them. There are 10 that I managed to find. Maybe if you read it, you can find some more. So uh, the first one comes in verse 1. Some people want him dead. There's unbelief, which we've just seen in his brothers. There are people who contend he's a good man in verse 12, and then right back at them, some people say, no, he's deceiving people. There's amazement. There's scorn. There's the accusation that he is possessed by a demon. There are questions. There are also some who believe in him, who trust in him. And there are others who are simply astonished at his words. They don't know what to make of him. But this raises a question. Why is it that Jesus is so divisive? Why are there so many different conclusions that people draw concerning him? I think there are at least two reasons. The first one is that Jesus breaks the categories that people expected him to fit into. Uh, you see, as you read this chapter, a number of places where people state uh, uh, expectations at the time by which they would assess if this is the Messiah or not, someone who claims to be the Christ. Um, there are these tests by which they would test his claims. Uh, so some of these have their basis in the Bible. Some of them are just expectations that people had. Uh, have a look at them there. They'll be on the screen, I believe. Uh, verse 27, people say, but we know where this man, Jesus, is from. 
when the Messiah comes, no one will know where he's from. Then verse 31, still many in the crowd believed in him. They said, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? And verse 42, does not scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? I wonder if you notice a problem there. How can you expect the Messiah to, um, to know he comes from Bethlehem, but at the same time expect his origins to be a mystery? See, Jesus didn't fit into the categories of at least many of the people. And in fact, Jesus isn't interested in uh, what they're arguing about here. He, he says, actually, uh, it doesn't matter where I come from. Ultimately, I come from God and I'm sent by him. That is my ultimate origin. Never mind where I was born. But Jesus doesn't just break first century Jewish categories, does he? In every age and in every culture, people have their categories, their expectations for what God must be like if he's real. We have our own set of categories. We think this is good, that's bad. And if God is real, if God is really good, he must conform to our set of standards. The trouble is, Jesus doesn't. There is no culture or age or society, no one society, culture, or age that has a handle on Jesus. There are things about him that will shock and offend every one of us, every culture. That's the first reason. The second reason is connected, the reason he's so divisive, uh, and it's because people are bad at discernment. People are not good judges. And uh, Jesus is spot on, actually, when he makes that assessment that we read at the start. He says, people judge on the basis of mere appearances instead of judging correctly. You see, we aren't good at making judgments. We all have our own biases. We have our own vested interests in something being true or believed. We have our own uh, areas of ignorance that color the way in which we judge and assess. I, I like to think about it as we all have uh, discernment engines that help us make judgments, but they're all broken. They don't work quite as they're meant to. And so, uh, but they're all broken in unique ways, depending on our biases and, and our, our vested interest and our ignorance. And so we all come to different wrong conclusions about things all the time. This is true, isn't it? In, in society, we see so much disagreement on so many issues. And when it comes to Jesus, we shouldn't expect any different. In, in fact, things are amplified because of the claims that he makes and because of the magnitude of the claims that he makes. Each person looks at Jesus with their own little broken discernment engine, and they come to a different conclusion. The result, as we see in this chapter, is division and confusion. And I think this is fundamentally important to realize, uh, whether you are a Christian or a non-Christian, whether you believe Jesus' claims or not. Uh, for Christians, it's fundamentally important that you realize this because you need to know what to expect when the topic of Jesus comes up. If you love Jesus, if you value him above life itself, it is only natural that you will talk about him that you will tell others about him. He has changed your life. Why would you not want to share that with others? 
The problem comes when other people aren't as excited as you are about Jesus. When that happens, you need to understand that this is normal. Jesus has always been divisive. So when you tell others about him, expect strong reactions. No one is neutral. Some people will hear about him with joy. Others will hate the sound of his name. Don't be discouraged. Both of these are normal. So that's why Christians need to hear this. Uh, But if you are unconvinced by the claims of Christianity and about Jesus, it's important that you understand the same fact. Because one of the main reasons that people reject Christianity is that everyone's saying something different. Everyone claims to know Jesus, and everyone claims this is what the Bible says. But once you realize that the people weighing in and making these judgments all have faulty discernment engines and all make bad judgments all of the time, you will hesitate to make a conclusion, to draw a conclusion based on what other people tell you. Now, I'm not saying no one is capable of saying anything true about Jesus. Otherwise, we would just read in church and we wouldn't have sermons. Um, Simply that there is a lot of noise out there. There are a lot of people making claims about him, and there always has been. It's been the case since Jesus walked the earth. So, if you want to find out who he is, you need to move in a little closer and listen to him. Come to the source and hear what's coming out there. Check what Jesus says about himself in the scriptures. And by the way, Christians who've disagreed for millennia now uh, have all held onto the scriptures despite their many disagreements, because this is the the source. This is the thing that can correct us when we go astray. We always have Jesus guiding us in his own words. So don't write off Jesus on the basis of what other people tell you. Consider his claims for yourself. Well, the second important aspect of Jesus' ministry that this chapter uh, confronts us with is that Jesus exposes hearts. So although this is a chapter that is full of people weighing in on the person of Jesus, at the end of the day, Jesus is the one whose assessment actually matters. Now, I don't know where each one of you this morning stands uh, when it comes to Jesus. Maybe you believe he is the Lord, he is the Christ, he is the Son of God. Maybe you don't. But your opinion of him makes no difference one way or the other to the facts of those claims. They're true regardless of what you believe. The assertion that Jesus is the Messiah, the the assertion he makes about himself, he's the Messiah, he is from God, and he is himself God, if, if those claims are true, then when all is said and done, Your opinion about him isn't what matters. His opinion about you is what matters. Make no mistake, even as we see people weighing in on who Jesus is throughout this chapter and coming to all sorts of conclusions about him, there is simultaneously another assessment going on. I wonder if you saw it. Jesus is simultaneously assessing people to see whether or not they are judging correctly or on the basis of mere appearance. And Jesus' assessment of those weighing in about him, and as well as his assessment of us, if we presume to do that, um, is about as unflattering as an assessment 
an assessment as you can get. So as we did with the, the various judgments of the people in this chapter concerning Jesus, let's flip the tables and see what Jesus thinks about people. So um, have a look. Uh, in verse 7, we see Jesus has examined the world, and he now testifies its works are evil. It's the language of acting as a witness and giving testimony in court. This is his expert opinion. I've looked at everyone. Their works are evil. Verse 19, he says, not one of you keeps God's law. Verse 24, which we've already seen, he says, stop making superficial judgments. Instead, judge correctly. The implication being people have been wrong this whole time. And verse 28 speaking to people who claim to be waiting and longing for their God to act in history, he says, you don't even know the God you claim to trust. So to summarize, this is Jesus speaking to his own people. He says they are workers of evil, lawbreakers, who act as corrupt or, if we're being generous, uh, negligent judges. And to top it all off, they are hypocrites for claiming to worship a God they don't even know. It's brutal. It's confronting. And when all said and done, what is it actually about this assessment, uh, about what they've done, that leads Jesus to this conclusion? Why is his assessment of these people so damning? What is their crime? Well, their chief crime is this. They have failed to recognize Jesus for who he is, the one sent of God who speaks on God's behalf. Now, uh, to understand that, we need to uh, unravel that a little bit. So this is not their only crime. But if you think of their crimes as a, as a big mess, this is, the, this is the string which, if you pull on it, it unravels all the rest. So... Uh, let's consider one example of, of how Jesus gets to that point. What does, what does rejection of Jesus have to do with breaking God's law? Because that's the claim he makes. You are all lawbreakers. Have a look from verse 16. Jesus answered, My teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? Sounds a bit confusing, but what Jesus is saying here is that in order to be able to assess whether or not he comes from God and speaks for God, it's necessary that the person making that judgment, making that assessment, is someone who chooses to do God's will. Now, if you think about it, that makes sense. How can you claim to make judgment in line with what God thinks if you're not interested in what God thinks and you don't act in accordance with what God thinks? You can't. So their inability to assess him demonstrates they are lawbreakers. They don't know God's law. They don't trust God's law. They are not bought into God's law. Otherwise, they would recognize him as a fellow obedient follower of the God they claim to follow. But instead, ironically, they seek to kill him. 
One of the obvious laws that everyone knows from the Bible, thou shalt not murder. And yet when they see Jesus showing them up, that's what they want to do. Therefore, whether or not you take Jesus seriously is tied up with whether or not you are obedient to God's law, your relationship to his law. To reject Jesus is to reject God and everything he says. But remember, this is not just Jesus' assessment of his people, the Jewish people, even though that is what most of the chapter is focused on. The whole world stands condemned for rejecting Jesus. The world hates him. Verse 7 told us so. And it explains to us why it is that the world hates him and can't accept him. It's because he testifies that its works are evil. Jesus shows us up. His assessment of us is not, uh, he doesn't grade on a curve as we do for ourselves. We think, I'm not as bad as that person, I'm not as bad as that person, so I must be okay. Jesus says, no, all of you, collectively, your works are evil. And when he does that, our first response is to hate him, to despise him. Now, if Jesus left things here, this would be a disaster for every one of us. No one chooses to do God's will. The one sent of God has come, and he brings judgment. He makes his assessment of our world, and he says, your works are evil. You're in trouble with the God who made you. As it stands, there is nothing left but to await the sentencing for our crimes, which is the death sentence. And yet, gloriously, that is not the last word in this chapter. And so the final aspect of Jesus' ministry that we see on display here is that Jesus offers us what we don't deserve. Just to uh, change gears for a moment, what is the one thing that every person, no matter of life situation or background or anything else, has in common? There are probably a number of things you could think of, but one thing that, that binds us in a very basic way is every one of us is dependent on water. We can't live without water. We're made up of, I believe it's 70% water. I know there's some scientists around here. Um, we all get thirsty. If we go without water, even just for a few days, our organs shut down and eventually our entire body dies. There is this very close relationship between water and life. And Jesus picks up on this idea in this chapter as he speaks to people who he has just assessed as worthy of death under God's judgment. And he stands up and he speaks to them. And here are his words. Verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood up and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as, scriptures have, as scripture has said, Rivers of living water will flow from them. Now, at one level, this is a simple offer. It is Jesus offering life to people who don't deserve it. It's an incredibly generous offer. But it quickly becomes that he's talking about more than just survival, more than mere life. I said earlier, these events are taking place in Jerusalem 
uh, at the final pilgrimage festival of the, the year, the Festival of Tabernacles. And to understand the fullness of Jesus' words here, we actually need to understand a little bit about um, the background of that festival. So on the one hand, this is a celebration of what God has done in the past. It is a festival that remembers the period in history when God brought his people out of slavery in Egypt. Um, So they remember that event at the Passover. But then this is the period just after that, when they're walking around in the wilderness, and they're on their way to the promised land, and they're in the desert. They have nothing. And they remember at the Festival of Tabernacles, the period where they stayed in tents or tabernacles, and where God provided for them graciously. He, he provided water from the rock in order to supply their needs. And so um, part of this celebration, to remember that event, to commemorate it, priests would carry water into the temple and pour it out onto the altar. This was remembering God's kindness in the past and also expressing their ongoing dependence on him to provide for their needs. They did this in the dry season, They need God to send water. And they express their dependence through this festival. And so Jesus is making the claim, I am the one who provides. I am the God who provided in the past, and I am the God who you need to provide for you in the future, upon whom you are dependent for life. So that's the the past-looking aspect of the festival, but it also looks forward to the future. Uh, Throughout the prophet's writing, there is this looking forward to a day um, when God would pour forth water from his temple. Uh, The key place is Ezekiel 47. God promised that rivers of water would flow out of his temple and give life to the surrounding area, to the desert. The desert would become a, a forest. But this is symbolic not just of, you know, normal life, but... The presence of God, the place where God's presence and blessing and abundance is pouring out to the whole world. It's not located in one place anymore, but it's being poured out to everyone. And so Jesus stands up at this festival in the temple, the place of God's presence, and he says, I am the one who provides. I am the one who will pour out the spirit of God and give life. And not just any life, abundant life, the life that comes from knowing the God who is himself life, the source of all that is good, the one who created everything, the God from whom every good thing flows. And he offers it to us freely. Now, I want to suggest, uh, just let's pause here for a moment. I want to suggest to you that every one of us is looking for something like this, is looking for this living water. You can call it what you want. We're looking for it somewhere. We yearn for something that will not just give us the minimum nutrients we need to sustain life. We don't just want a drip and a food tube that keeps us alive. We want something that sustains us, that energizes us, that gives us real abundant life something that makes life in this world worth living. And there, are no sh- there is no shortage of things that promise to give you that, things that promise satisfaction and happiness if you can just get your hands on it or get enough of it. Relationships, 
family, the perfect family. Wow, if I had that. Comfort, delicious food and drink, entertainment, money, exciting experiences, whatever it is, whatever it is that you long for, you think will make you happy. Many of these things are good things, by the way, and have their place. But whatever those things are, you need to understand not one of them will satisfy your desire for living water. Not one of them will sustain you and give you abundant life and joy and blessing. They look good. They look like they'll refresh you. But drink too deeply, and you discover there's salt in the water. There are many offers out there, but none of them, one of them, none of the false ones can offer what we desperately crave. Jesus says, I can give you the real thing. I can give you living water, abundant life. But how is his offer any different? How is Jesus able to offer this thing that nothing else in this world can deliver? Well, notice how it is. Uh, We're told in John chapter 7. Let's read from verse 37 again. Halfway through, Jesus speaking says, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this, he meant the Spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive, up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Hmm. Something needs to happen before this abundant life that Jesus is offering can be given to people. And remember, these are people he's offering it to who stand guilty before God, stand guilty of rejecting the God who is life himself, and so stand under the death penalty, how can he give life to those people? How can he give life to you and to me? Well, in John's gospel, the way that Jesus' death is described is as the hour of his glorification. Sometimes it talks about the hour. His hour had not yet come. His hour is the hour when he goes to die. In verse 30, you see the reason the people who are fighting about Jesus can't manage to lay hands on him and arrest him and kill him, is that his hour had not yet come. The time is coming when he will lay his life down, but when he makes this offer, it has not yet come. The moment when Jesus will willingly lay down his life for you and for me. So when you hear Jesus say, come to me, come and drink, come and experience life. I hope you feel the weight of those words. Because this offer is unlike any other. These aren't the empty words of someone trying to sell you something. These are words purchased with his own blood. And so today you have a choice. Will you come to Jesus and drink from the only one who can offer life-giving water, abundant life in God, who reconciles us to the God who made us and from whom every good thing comes? Or will you look elsewhere? Will you try and find water in something else that this world has to offer? And drink 
and drink until you die of dehydration. Because every other source is salt water. It looks good. It can't quench your thirst. It will leave you off worse than you were before drinking it. Everything else is powerless to give you what you really need and actually what you desire above all else. Jesus offers what can satisfy you, and he died to secure it for you. If you have never drank from the water that Jesus offers, I pray that this morning you would do that for the first time. If you want to find out how to do that, you can chat to me or to Grant. Um, don't, don't continue drinking from things that will not sustain you, that will leave you um, empty. But come to him and find life. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that in Christ we can be reconciled to you. We can have a relationship with the God we have betrayed we are forsaken and rebelled against. Thank you that although Jesus sees us as we truly are, he sees our hearts and he sees that they are corrupt, that he does not cast us aside, but that he spilt his blood to purchase us life so that we can be counted as his brothers and sisters. We thank you for this enormous privilege. And I pray that not one of us would would lose the opportunity to take hold of this offer. In Jesus' name, amen.